Welcome to All Souls Anglican Church. I'm Father Stephen. I'm the rector here. I'm very glad that you're here. We have a lot of new faces tonight. Uh, I'm assuming it's because you all knew I wasn't preaching. But what you didn't know is that we're actually doing like a little 15-minute discussion about uh, sort of how we imagine ourselves as a parish in the world. So uh, if you're new, buckle up. I'm going to kind of be referring to some stuff that we talked about over the summer. But uh, I'm going to try to go somewhat quick because I don't think you guys really want to hear a complete second sermon. Maybe you do. Should we do it? Yes. All right. Thanks, Harmon. Really good to have you, man. Quick announcements before I forget. Bridge and noon prayers are off this week, and they'll be back next week. Okay? All right. So before we get to uh, how we imagine ourselves in the world and where we're headed, I want to just take a couple minutes at the risk of going along to talk about where we've been. In the Old Testament, one of the strongest injunctions to God's people in the midst of all the various laws and regulations and rules of which there are hundreds was to remember, always remember, and to retell what the Lord had done for His people, to explain to their children where all these strange customs and rituals had come from. So in that vein, I want to just take a couple minutes to tell you about where we were about a year ago. About 14 months ago, my wife and I looked at each other, and we looked at our credit card statement, and we looked at our food stamp statement, and we looked at our mortgage statement, and we said, good try. We thought this was a good idea. We felt like Jesus was asking us to try to start a church. We tried, and now it's over. So, all right, let's figure out how to break it to the rest of the group. Typically, when you plant a church, you have a core team, very well established. You have funding figured out for the first five years, and we didn't have either of those things. There is a small handful of us that had glommed on over the spring and summer of last year, but it was clear by late summer of last year that we just weren't going to get it off the ground. I was going to need to go find a job. We were going to have to sell our house. We were probably going to have to move in with my parents, all that really fun stuff that you just dream about. And then we got a one-time gift by a family in this church. For a family to give this gift, it was incredibly generous and totally out of the blue. And it would be about enough to get us from September to December of that year. And so as our leadership team got together, we, we decided, okay, with sort of our, our regular in-house giving and this one-time gift, we can stretch this out and give Steve a salary so that they don't have to sell their house or anything like that and then keep feeding their kids. And then at the end of December, we'll probably have to say the exact same thing. Hey, good game, everybody. We really tried. And so we kept going. And we went from worshiping once a month to worshiping every week. And a few of you in this room, brave souls that you were, opened up your living rooms for a church service every Sunday. And you would set up. And oftentimes we'd have brunch When January of this year came, it didn't matter how you crunched the numbers. We had spent all of that money. It was gone. Except that there was three times that amount of money in our bank account. And I'm notoriously bad with math, so I shouldn't be the guy that you would ask anyway, but I have no idea how it happened, other than the goodness of Christ. Ah, I'm not going to cry. I tell that story wherever I go because it's a story about God's goodness. The story of All Souls Church is a story of complete weakness, just, just being like no reason to exist, 
We started from a place of absolute helplessness. None of us had even been Anglican before. We had no building. We had nothing but a dream shrouded in dense fog, and many of us in those early days were feeling frayed at the edges, weren't we? Our marriages were strained. For some of us, faith was feeling distant and a bit hollow. But Jesus is so good. He has showered us with gift upon gift, with blessing through the generosity of people in this room and people that we haven't even met. There's a family in Austin that I stayed with for like two nights. I talked to this guy for five minutes. They gave money to this church so that we could survive. Every step of the way, as we have been tentative, Jesus has thrown open doors, quite literally. We are in this place because of the goodness of his people at St. Michael's Lutheran. So I know I'm going to go long because of this, but I cannot say, I can't not say it. I cannot not tell about his goodness. Because it's not remotely about just getting us established as an institution. It's about the work that I see him doing in our lives. It's the way that we have watched him provide housing for people needing to move, providing jobs for people needing work, the way that he has been stitching marriages back together, the way that he has snatched little babies out of the NICU, off of the brink and back into life. Jesus is doing work in this place. And I'm so glad to be a part of it. So, isn't he good? I want you to say it like Kevin Hart, the comedian. Say it with your chest. Isn't he good? He's good. Yeah. All right. Here's where we're headed. All along the way, for those of you that have been with us for a while, I have told you I'm not going to give you a mission statement. I'm not going to give you a vision statement. And I'm not going to give you core values. I told you that we were going to let these things emerge over time as Christ continued to lead us. As we continue to follow his example in looking toward the Father and seeing what the Father is doing and doing only those things, these things would start to crop up. So initially we tried on five habits. And we talked about from the very, very beginning that these were good things to strive for, but they weren't necessarily it. They weren't going to be the final draft of how we conceive of ourselves in the world. We wanted to be people that were marked by these things. Can any of us say them, by the way? Okay, this is why we're changing it up, okay? We wanted to be people marked by prayerful mission, ancient rootedness, disciplined rhythm, transcendent beauty, and radical hospitality. I think all those things are still true. They're still worthy of our time and effort. I think we're moving in that direction, but they're a little bit unwieldy in terms of language for us to talk about in common, who we are, how we see ourselves. So I've spent a good bit of time over the summer trying to put language to how we're beginning to imagine ourselves in the world, and that's what I want to share with you. The first is the vision. Our vision for who we are and where we are headed at, as all souls is not a manufactured vision. This is not me getting alone in a room with a Google search and trying to come up with some cool words to piece together. In fact, it's not even a vision that's specific to us. It's just for the church, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which when you're ordained in the Anglican church, the bishop gives you a Bible, and the bishop wrote that verse in the front page of my Bible, okay? The man might have the gift of prophecy. This is what it says. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one deg degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The thing that we want the thing that brings us life is a vision of God himself. It is to behold with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord. 
I mean, what we're talking about here is Isaiah 6, it's Revelation 4, it's the vision that the Eucharistic liturgy is centered around. We say it every week in the Sanctus, don't we? And so you guys can, can have ringing in your ears when we get there. I'm going to read parts of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 because it, it's, really, it's really quite staggering what this vision really is, what it really means for people like us. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, of course, woe is me, I am undone. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. And of course, if you know the story, you know that one of the seraphim flies to Isaiah and touches his lips with the hot coal and cleanses him with atonement. Your guilt is taken away, he says. Now, John the seer, in the book of Revelation, this is thousands of years later, this is what he sees when he is caught up. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of em emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like a crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is the vision, period. There is no other vision for us as a church. It is just that we are all facing the same direction, looking toward Christ with unveiled faces, beholding his glory. That's it. If you wanted something pithier, I'm sorry. I don't have it. That's the vision. Over the summer, we spent four sessions talking about discipleship, and specifically the point of discipleship, the telos, right? The, the, the train terminal that we're all going toward. And we said that the point of discipleship is to live a life hidden with Christ in God. That's what it is. It's to be rooted in the divine life more and more. And the way that that happens in a daily way is what Harmon was talking about. It's through the self-discipline that's formed in us in this stereo listening to Scripture and the liturgical prayers of the church. And we pull both of those things into our daily lives through daily liturgical prayer and scripture reading. And when we had those discussions, I threw a bunch of metaphors at you all at once. Do you guys remember this? I said that Christ is our mountain, 
that we should look up to the peak hidden in the clouds and have our hearts leap up in us to want to climb higher. Christ is our ocean. We should stand there and watch the sun dipping behind it and want to know where it's going and go out on an adventure. And then later, I even scrambled that up and said, he's not just the ocean, he's the boat upon which we go and explore his depths. He's not just the mountain, he's the footpath upon which we trod higher and higher into his mystery. And it's not even through our own effort. He is the blood and air in our body, animating us by his spirit in everything that we do. So today, what I want to tell you is that Christ is our true north. He is the gravitational center of our lives that is pulling us always and ever toward him, toward that vision, okay? So with Christ as our true north, these are the four marks of our compass, these four directional gauges for our imagination to help us on our journey. Okay, if you really have to, there are four core values, okay? But just let me, let me have my stupid metaphor, okay? It's a compass. The first is we are apostolic. All these are words that nobody knows, by the way, so I'm going to explain them. We're apostolic. This is the mark by which the church, capital C, the church, is recognized as identical with the church founded by Jesus upon the apostles, which is to say the faith that we have is one that has been handed to us. It's been passed down from generation to generation. There's that verse in the passage tonight in 2 Timothy where Paul talks about the power that Timothy received in the laying on of hands. So we believe that that has been happening unbroken for thousands of years now and that the church today is the same as it was. I'll tell you how that informs us in just a second. But the other meaning of apostolic is literally to be sent. Apostles were sent people. They were mission people. The church has been commissioned and sent by Christ to carry on his mission in the world as his body. Don't, don't deaden yourself to the metaphor. It's his mission and we're him, weirdly, okay? That's what it means to be apostolic. It means that the church is the only society in the world, as it's been said, that exists for non-members, right? We're not here for us. We're here for everybody out there. To be apostolic means both to be sent on mission, our entire baptized life, is one long journey of being with Christ in the company of people that he desires company with. That's important. It's not people that we desire company with, it's people that he desires company with. And included in that, by the way, is definitely company with the Father. Because that's all of Jesus' life is oriented toward the Father. So if we're on mission with him, we're going out to the people that he is going out to, and we are in constant communion with the Father. And it's also, to be apostolic, is to be visibly and conspicuously linked to the ancient church. This link is visible in our forms of worship and in our church government. So we have bishops, priests, and deacons. If you guys want to know more about what that means, we can talk after. Um, what I'm saying here with this part is that we have a rich heritage as Christians. You've heard me say it before. If what we're doing here feels like entertainment or education primarily, we are doing something wrong. That's not why we're here. That's not what we do. We are here to worship and to join in with that angelic chorus of holy, holy, holy and get that vision back in our sight. That's why we're here. Part of being apostolic is a refusal to give to the world, and by that I mean us, to give to ourselves what we think we want most, and instead to give again and again and again what is most needed. And what is most needed are the things that we do here every week. Scripture is a huge part. I love that the reading of the Word is almost as long as the preaching of the Word. Right? Say it again. Amen. Amen. 
silence. Our world does not want silence. We don't like what's in our heads, do we? We would rather have a diagnosis than absolution, but that's not what we need. We need to confess, and we need to be absolved, and we need to sit silently and allow the Spirit of God to talk to us, okay? Being apostolic is a refusal to give the world what it thinks it wants and instead to again and again give it what it needs. We should have Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6 ringing in our ears every time we enter those doors. And so, when you start to get that itch like, ugh, Father Stephen's sermons just aren't as witty as they used to be. It's not that I can't pay attention. Or like, Lindsay hasn't led my favorite songs in a while. That's just, that's not why we're here. That's not it. We're here for that vision of holy, holy, holy. That's why we're here. All right, that's one. Two, we're sacramental people. Sacramental literally means a sacred mystery. The sacraments proper that we talk about with baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, those are things that are, are talked about as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace, okay? Uh, if you have questions about this, we can talk more about that. But what I'm getting at with sacramental should clue you in on the fact that, yeah, we dress weird and we have fancy things up there and you guys are going to come up there and we're going to do that every time we're together, every time, because these things give us life, they inform who we are. But it's actually more than that. To be sacramental is really a view of the world. It's a view of the world both in time and space, so like all of human history and all of the known universe is an epiphany of God. It's an unveiling of God. It's a, it's a revelation of God, okay? So to be sacramental people would then mean that we are expectant people that we are waiting for a glimpse of God's unveiling and we're assuming that it will happen at any moment. Being sacramental means that we take our bodies seriously. We believe that God works through physical means. We believe that he created a world physically for a reason, that he became incarnated in flesh for a reason, okay? And so what that means is, yeah, we might have weird rules about sex, but it's not because we think sex is dirty. It's because we know sex is incredible and it's apocalyptic, right? You following me? Sex between a husband and wife is apocalyptic. It literally is unveiling the reality of the world and how God loves his people. Too weird? Too much? <laughs> oh, it's apocalyptic. I don't know. That might, that might not catch on. <laughs> we also have weird rules about drunkenness and gluttony, right? But it's not because we think alcohol and food are evil. It's because we believe that wine was created to be a sacrament, not the other way around, okay? We don't believe that the sacraments were created because wine existed. Wine exists because of the sacraments. So being sacramental is to view the world almost backward compared to how we normally would. It's not that water has always existed way back when, and then the church got together and decided that it'd be cool to make it this magical thing where if we say the right words, suddenly it's like this rite of passage and you're cleansed from all your sins. No, 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 no. It's that water was created for baptism. <laughs> That's why water exists. Here's our baptismal rite. If you bring your child or you come for baptism, this is what we'll say to you, or we'll say to God in, in the rite. We thank you, Almighty God, for the gift of water. Over it, very beginning, the Holy Spirit moved in the beginning of creation. 
Through it, you led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt into the land of promise. In it, your son Jesus received baptism of John and was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah, the Christ, to lead us through his death and resurrection from the bondage of sin into everlasting life. That's baptism, and that's why water exists. That's what it means to be sacramental. It's to invert our understanding of what the physical world is for. It's all an epiphany of God. It's an unveiling of his glory, okay? Three, we're eschatological people, which means that we are characterized or shaped by the eschatology. So that, that's clear, right? Okay. Eschatology literally means last things. It's the end days. The church is eschatological as it leans in hope toward the final resurrection and renewal of all things. It's a, it's a direction in the world, okay? So it's to know the end of the story and to live accordingly. It's to know that all things will find their unity in Christ and to live accordingly. So to me, being eschatological is marked in two main ways, and I talk about these two things almost constantly. So if you haven't heard me use these words, I've been alluding to the ideas. So here's the words. These are, again, words that nobody knows. I don't even know where I find this stuff. I can't pronounce them. Here we go. Zenzucht is a sense of poignant longing. C.S. Lewis was very, very, very captured by this idea of poignant longing. He didn't really feel at home in the world. It, it feels like you're longing for a home that you don't actually know, right? You've never been to. The feeling that you're coming back to a place you've not yet reached. It was once described as feeling as though you were born in the wrong place. Anybody? We talk about it here a lot as a desire for home, for our true home. And we say that Christ is our true home. And the empty kind of sadness that we all feel when we return to our childhood home or our hometown is pointing us to this longing, okay? And, and this is where, again, our, our culture of distraction is just obsessed with not letting us actually feel the pain of it. But you have to feel the pain of it to really get the longing down deep in your bones. As eschatological people, we do not avoid the pain of the longing. We press into it and we look, again, with unveiled faces to behold the glory of the Lord. And the second one is eucatastrophe or eucatastrophic joy. This is Tolkien. This is C.S. Lewis's buddy. This is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy such that it brings tears. It's kind of the same feeling, but they probably argued about it all the time. Uh, it, it's the idea that your life has been going so disastrously and headed towards such destruction, and then all of a sudden there's this, like, miraculous thing that happens that you can't even explain. And it's, it's like, it's not like those things didn't happen, and that's why there's still this kind of sadness, but the joy is just, it's unmatched. It's totally unmatched. Tolkien talked about it as a joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Literally, it means a good unraveling. He said that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible. Okay? And that leads us to number four. We are gospel people. We are people marked by the death and resurrection of Christ and the story that that, that brings into the world. And I can't sum it up any better than Robert Capon. So I decided not to even try. He says, the life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set ourselves. It is a continually renewed attempt 
simply to believe that someone else, capital S, capital E, someone else has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person whether we feel like we can achieve it or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right. It isn't, he says. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. This is what Harmon was talking about. That death, baptism, water, all this stuff is totally interrelated. But the, the story that is foundational to how we understand ourselves in the world is this story, that we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And while we were dead, Christ died for us. To be gospel people is to be people who have been met with you catastrophe, right? This unbelievable turn of events. And so we are filled with longing for a new home. It, it just feeds itself back into being eschatological people and being sacramental people and being apostolic people, okay? So, the vision is God himself. The compass that is helping us, like, stay together on course is that we are people that are apostolic, sacramental, eschatological, and gospel. And we're going to talk about these all the time. So, write those words down, figure out how they're really pronounced, and come tell me later. It'll be great. Finally, here is what we need, okay? Just real practical, bare bones. This is where we're at as a church, okay? Quickly, finances. God has continued to bless us. We are paying all of our bills. I have not once in the last year worried if I will be getting a paycheck. So thank you to all of you who are giving generously. And praise be to God. Uh, just so you guys know how we're making this work, we're getting a grant from our diocese uh, they, they run for a year, and then you reapply. So I just reapplied for 2017. Uh, we get a very generous grant because they know we're out here at the edge of the world, and all the other churches in our diocese were, were, were planning out, uh, planted out of another church, and we weren't, so I kind of remind them of that every time I send in my essays for the application. So odds are we will get a grant again in January. Um, but the idea is that we would eventually sort of outpace that and outgrow that in our own giving. So we're still there. Uh, we're still spending at a burn rate, which means like our, our, our bills are more than what we're getting in regularly. Um, and we're looking to bring on support staff. So I, I'm saying to you two things at once. You getting that I really love tension or I can't actually find the truth somewhere in between two poles? God has taken amazing care of us. And, and we actually have money in our bank account, and it's incredible. And we also have a lot more work to do, and so we need to just continue to give generously, okay? And that leads me into volunteers. Uh, we need people in the nursery, in the liturgy, greeting new people, facilitating hospitality. We're going to need new bridge group hosts soon. Uh, most of all, we need people who can coordinate volunteers. And here's what I want you to hear. I'm talking to two distinct groups of people right now in this room. One group of you are those of you that have been with us from the beginning, and I know. I know. You're tired. I get it. We're in that stage of the process where we've just given birth, and it's the hardest work we've ever done in our lives, and now the hospital is sending us home saying, good luck, guys. The work has just begun. So I know that we're tired, 
but we still have work to do. And so I, I just, I, I want you guys to find a healthy rhythm, okay? So if you've been with us from the beginning and you've been opening up your home left and right and doing all sorts of things behind the scenes and you need a break, take a break. But if you've had a, a little water break and you're ready to get back in, we're ready to have you jump back in, okay? Second group of people, you're the people that are a little bit newer. We're so glad you're here. We can use your help. I was telling Kevin this last week, if you've been here more than three times in a row, and heck, I'll just say if you've been here more than three times, we're probably going to assume that you're here and we'll just start asking you to do stuff. So if you have gifts or you have ideas or you have things that you see that could be done and you want to do them, come find me, find one of our vestry members, talk to Lindsay, figure it out. We would love to get you plugged in, okay? Here's my one real big super specific ask. I really need someone to help me schedule and coordinate volunteers. So if you're the kind of person that can go out and find them and get them on board and then manage them and like get them on a schedule and that sort of thing, I will owe you, I mean, I'll give you the biggest piece of communion bread, you guys. Is that how, no, that's not how it works. That, I, I really, I could use help in that area. That, that's one big specific thing. So uh, if, that, if you feel like that might be you, take some time, pray about it, but then do come talk to me. Okay, that is all, all right? If you guys have questions, I know I threw a lot at you. I tried to be quick. Um, we're going to move into the communion portion of our liturgy. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we invite all baptized Christians to come and feast with us. So you'll, you'll just kind of notice.